Good evening. First Samuel chapter twenty-three. David is on the run from Saul. He's gathering with him a, a band of distressed, in debt, disgruntled people. And he is going to turn this group into his new kingdom, really. Remember, God had anointed Samuel, or David by Samuel, earlier, and taken the kingdom away from Saul, but Saul is still the king. And so David is running for his life, and with him are coming a bunch of people, 400, it talks about in the first part of chapter 22. And as he's running, we're going to see some of the things that take place as he's on the run. And so in chapter 23, let's start reading verses 1 through 6. It says, when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting in the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. First of all, as this is taking place, a couple of questions came to my mind. Any come to your mind? What's that? What's an ephod? Okay, an ephod was what the priests carried. It was kind of like a robe that would overshadow them, but it was something that was specifically worn by the priests. And remember, Ahimelech was the priest that was killed by Saul. And so this is his son, and he is now carrying this. So he is now taking over that priestly duty. And so it was something specifically worn by the priest. And that's very important in our passage today. Any other questions come out as you look at? Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit too. Anyone wonder why did they tell David? Why'd they go to David? He's not the king. Why did they bring this information to him? Why wouldn't they bring this information to Saul? David cared. David was the person who got things done. David was the man of action, as we've talked about. And so who do you go to when there is a crisis? Do you go to the person who has the title or to the person who gets it done? And so they go to David because he's the guy who has been getting things done. And they thought, well, Let's tell him. And David has no reason to step in here. It's dangerous for him. In fact, he could easily have said, that's Saul's responsibility. He's king. He's supposed to be taking care of the people. 
go tell him I'm not going to put my neck on the chopping block. But he doesn't. Instead, it says he inquires of the Lord. And he does it twice. And what does that look like? Inquiring of the Lord. Now, most of the time we think, well, it's praying. But here, as we're going to see even later on in the chapter, it had to do a lot with Abithar, the high priest who was there. Because later on, we're going to see that he goes to Abithar and asks and inquires of him. And what the priest would do, would they would carry what was called the ermine and the thuman. And what we believe these were, were like two stones. One was like light and one was dark. We don't know exactly how they were used But it was believed that when they would inquire of the Lord, they would ask God and then they would pull out the stone. And if it was the light one, it would be yes. Or if it was the dark one, it would be no. But they're very specific in how they ask as we see the questions that come out. And so most likely, David went to the high priest as he came there and inquired of the Lord with the high priest. But the bottom line is he did inquire. He he questioned He asked God for advice. We we see that this is an important thing, that his question and God's answer was also that of to help. In other words, he wasn't just looking for his own sake. It was for the sake of someone else. And how important is that in our prayer life? You know, so many times when we read Jesus's words, you know, about Whatever you ask, it shall be given. If you were to ask for this mountain to be taken and put into the sea and did not doubt it would happen to you. If you read around those passages, they're always about relational aspect with each other. If you're forgiving, if you're loving, that plays an important part in our prayer life. And I think unselfishness is an important part of our prayer life and our intercourse with God as well. When we are wanting to help others, know that God is postured to help us. But if it's just about saving ourselves, well, could be yes, could be no. But here, David inquires of the the Lord twice. And I love that he did it twice because I probably would ask again, too. That wasn't the answer I was looking for. Are you sure, God? Let's go back and ask one more time. You see, God doesn't mind repetition and you coming to him over and over again. And so David says, well, it looks like we're supposed to go. The men said, are you sure? It's bad here, but it's worse there. And David takes heed to their concerns and asks again. Maybe this was for their sake, but how smart is that to try and answer the doubts of those who you're leading? And David inquires again, and again, we see that the the Lord is very specific. He says, go down to Keilah, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hands. And so whatever the request was or the inquiry, It was very specific, and God was very specific in the answer. Whether it was to the high priest, whether, however it took place, it was very specific. And so we see David is postured to help the people, which is why he's going to make a great king. That's because he already cares. 
A person who's going to lead needs to be a person who cares. Saul didn't care. Saul just cared about himself, his position, as we've seen, and it's gotten gradually worse. And so we continue in verse 7. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abathar, the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. And so we see the Priests being brought in, bring me the ephod, and that's why we believe it was this specific way of inquiry. Because again, he says, bring me the ephod. Why would he want the ephod? Because it had the ermine and the thum and those stones in it. And this was their way of inquiry. You shaking your head? What are you thinking? Seems strange. Let's think about this, because it does seem strange for us but how do we make decisions? <laughs> Haven't done that in a while, but I mean, a lot of times it's based on what we feel, right? It's kind of an emotional thing. Well, I feel this, or maybe we feel that the Lord has given us insight through scripture of what we should do. This is the character that God would want me to demonstrate in this situation, not return evil for evil, but return good. Something like that might be the reason that our response is conditioned on how we should respond to those things. But I I think it's interesting that Saul thinks that God has delivered him, David, into his hands. Right? All right, I heard that David's here. He's trapped. The Lord has delivered him. Why would he think that? Because of circumstances. David goes to the priest and goes and inquires of the Lord. And so I believe that the Lord, through this specific story, with the priest there, as he has established the nation of Israel, has brought them to a place where this is how he would move the nation. It doesn't mean we should carry stones or flip coins today. Okay, I think we have a lot more revelation from God than they did on how we should move forward. But I find it interesting that Saul felt that David was given to him by the Lord because of circumstances. David, in spite of circumstances, inquired of the Lord and was delivered. Interesting. And so also notice David's motives and notice Saul's motives. David's motives were initially to help the people. Saul's motives are all about getting rid of David. And so it's interesting, again, that this would take place. You know, as David inquires of the Lord, because he inquired, he actually 
saved the life of lives of many people in this town. A lot of innocent bloodshed. And maybe it's just me, but a lot of times if I felt like God has led me to do something, and then I get there and things start falling apart, which is what happened with David, right? The Lord told him, go there. I'm going to give you victory. He goes there, and then he finds out David's on his way to kill you. Might have a tendency of thinking, hey, God, I did what you said. You you've told me to come here, and you came, and you set me up. This is a trap. Why would you do this, God? And so... That could be a tendency, but David just inquires again. Remember Jesus' parable in Luke 18 uh, of just being persistent in prayer. And it says that because of that person's persistence, not because they were fond of them or any other reason, but just because they were persistent, that that owner gave in. And the the picture isn't that God is going to give in. The, the picture is there one of persistence changes the circumstances. And so David doesn't just say, well, forget it. I asked God. He let us here. Okay, I guess we're supposed to stay here. He inquires again. And I think it's always good to inquire. When in doubt, pray it out. I don't know. I was going to sound so corny. Um, you know, when in doubt, you just got to kind of see things through. You got to inquire again and again and again. And it wasn't that God changed his mind. It's God just led him one step. And then he led him the next step. And then he might lead him one more step. And that's how God works so many times. At least it's been in my life. Has anyone else experienced that? Has God ever given you a 10-year plan? <laughs> he gave you a 10-year plan? Really? <laughs> Mine always changes every year, not even. You know, it's like weekly. It's like, okay, what am I going to be next week, God? Because I don't know. But God has basically given him instructions to go here. When he gets there, he has to inquire again what to do next. And so I think it's interesting, again, seeing the correlation. Um, why would these people give David up? What do you think? Why would they... So they don't get killed. So they don't get killed. Sounds like a good... Remember what Saul did to Ahimelech and the others? It wasn't long ago. I'm sure people knew about that. And remember, the, the numbers are with Saul. The Lord is with David. He had 400. We're going to see it increases now. But the numbers are with Saul. He's got thousands. Okay? So choose your team, people. You're going to be with David and his hundreds of disgruntled, in debt, dysfunctional group, or are you going to be with King Saul and his thousands? And so the people were probably going to cave in because of just the fear of what's going on. Um, and so this is pushing David again further in, in this area. Are there any things that stand out to you guys in these passages here? Just as David goes, delivers the group. Okay. Verse 13. So David and his men, about 600 in number. Now, I think that's interesting because it was 400. He's gained 200 people and a priest. 
right? See a, a shift taking place. He started off with 400 last chapter. He got 200 more. Maybe it was from this town or from at least that point to this point. There's 200 more. And we know now he's got the high priest with him. And so there, there is a change taking place. We're going to see Saul still has thousands, but David is accumulating quite a, a group. And so he left 600 in number, left Calah, and kept moving from place to place. Then Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah. He did not, when he found out, he did not go there. So he didn't really care about the city. He just wanted to move on. David stayed in the wilderness. Did I miss something? Did I skip a part? Nope. Okay. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Now, when it says day after day, as we've talked about before, years are taking place in these few chapters. So day after day could be not just a week. Okay. We could talk about months. It could be as long as a year. But the Lord did not give David into Saul's hand, which is, again, a curious statement just to make. More wilderness taking place. And then verse 15, while David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. This is just a beautiful couple of chapters. This is the last time that David will see Jonathan. He will not see him again after this point. But as he comes to this place, Jonathan goes ahead of his father Saul. And I love how it says, helped him find strength in God. Jonathan helped David find strength in God. How did he do that? We read how. He said, don't be afraid. So he he spoke courage into his fear. He said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. Gave him reassurance. You will be king over Israel. Reminded him that he was anointed and going to take this place. He also added, I will be second to you. That didn't happen. But even my father Saul knows this. And so he actually gave him strength by telling him not to be afraid, by affirming that God was with him and that he was going to be king And that he, even though he didn't become second in command, he was letting David know, I'm with you. What great things to take from if we want to strengthen someone in the Lord, isn't it? I mean, what great things. If you're going to help someone to find strength in God, help them not to be afraid. Give them affirmation that God is with them, hasn't left them, that God is going to continue to work for them, and affirm that you are with them. I just think that's a beautiful way of helping someone find strength in God, actually involving yourself with them. 
and being apart. And again, this is a beautiful picture. They make a covenant, but they've already made a covenant. They're really reaffirming the covenant that they've made to each other. Remember, Saul or David said that he would not kill uh, Jonathan's family or Saul's family when he took over. And Jonathan vowed to serve David and be under him. And so they're reaffirming that covenant together. What a just uh, rich passages these are. Anything stand out to you guys in this? Anything speak to you? Quiet group tonight. Okay. Well, then Jonathan leaves. David remains there. The Ziphites, they're called that because they were in the desert of Ziph. And so they called them the Ziphites. That's how they got that name. I always thought we should be called the Genocites, but... It's too close to genocide, and I thought that might not go over well. <laughs> it's a cult. I knew it. Um, anyway, I don't know where that came from. Okay. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horash, on the hill at Hecla, south of Jehoshaphat? And now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, And we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Like how the Lord's name is being kind of thrown around here. Isn't that interesting? Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph, ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Moan, in the Arabah, south of Jehoshman. Saul and his men began to search And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Moan. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Moan in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call the place Selah Hamelbim or Hamelakoth. And it basically means the rock of parting or of rescue. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Whoo, close call. Okay, these guys think on David. Okay, they, they tell on him. Again, Saul's got his men. They're figuring they'll get in good with Saul. And so Saul is on hot pursuit with David. And this picture is there's just, it's not even a mountain. It's a hill that's between them. And Saul is coming after David. And as he's coming one side of the hill, David's quickly trying to move on the other side. But it won't be long before Saul overtakes David. And so they're literally running for their life. And then, lo and behold, by coincidence, the Philistines come and attack and Saul has to leave. Interesting. And it's accounted for, they named the place this, you know, this rock of parting or rescue because, man, that was close. 
That was it. That was a close one. We just got out of that. Isn't that cool? And we know because we've been reading this story and because we're people of faith that God had his hand in this. God is the one at work. God is always working. And God will use circumstances to his advantage. Just like we can plan to do things, God plans things too. God God sets things in motion to accomplish the things that he wants to do. It's not like he's back there saying, well, it's just up to you people, whatever you want to do. No, God wants to accomplish something. He wants David on the throne. He's got a plan. And even though Saul is pursuing David, and even though David is going to fail and fall miserably, and even though there is going to be repercussions because of the things that David does, God never stops working things out to accomplish what he wants to do, which is to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so God is always at work, and we see this is just part of his work. Oh, this is getting close. Okay, ready? I can just see this like a a perfectly timed play. Okay, ready? Now, go. You know, Philistine army starts attacking. Oh, we're going to attack. Messenger, go. And it goes, and then tell Saul, we got to stop. Oh, no. And I could just see them, you know, it's like one of those movie scenes where it's just around the corner. If they were to turn one more rock, they might see David. But, oh, we got to leave. And David and his men are standing there all paralyzed. Oh, no. And then they leave. And it was one of those, you know, the music would be playing. It'd be really, you know, thriller going on right now. And and you'd just go, okay. God is at work. And he's masterful in the things that he does. He's at work for you, too. He's working to accomplish good in you. He's begun a work. He will complete it. Philippians 1.6 tells us. And so just as God is orchestrating all of history to bring about his son, Jesus, God is still moving in history to your benefit to accomplish what he needs to in each of us. And we need to be people of obedience and response to the things that God is doing so we can fully involve our lives with all that God is doing. Any questions or thoughts on this little part of the chapter? And we're going to go to chapter 24 here. Yes. Again, Saul. Well, no, it's just they knew that Saul was after David. And so they might have thought, well, they might have just thought they would get benefits from Saul. You know, Saul's got his armies, David's got his 600. And they might have thought, well, if we tell on David, maybe Saul will give us some favor, who knows? There's always people who will go to the other side. There's always people who will go. We don't know that he he didn't. We don't see that he knew that he was anointed, but we see that he knew that the kingdom was taken from him and was going to be given to another. And he does know that it's going to be David. We do know that, and we'll see that in this next chapter. And so how he knew that um, is probably obvious because of David's leadership. Everyone did. You know, when the armies loved him, I mean, he was just a true leader. Yeah, not that I know of in that regard. 
Okay, chapter 24. Let's kick it. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags and the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, "You, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Listen to this. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from the father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Isn't that great? I just had to read the whole chapter because you can't stop in the middle of this chapter. It's just, it's a scene. 
so many powerful things are happening here. Um, but first, let me open it up to you guys. What things stand out to you or are there any questions that you have? Now, what do you think's the the big deal? Why did he cut off? Well, first of all, we know what happened, right? When Saul went into the cave, he went to use the restroom, okay? And, and he probably took his cloak off, his robe, and set it aside somewhere, okay? So it wasn't like it was on him still. It was probably set off to the side. Remember, there's 3,000 men and horses outside the cave, so there's probably a lot of noise outside. It talks about a sheep pen t- as well. Some of these caves were large enough to hold a whole herd of sheep. So it's possible for David's men to have been in there hiding, maybe even some sheep in there. So there's a lot of going on. It's not just this quiet cave, you know, with the drip of water that you would hear or something like that, you know. It's a lot of things going on, but then this event takes place. Why do you think it was so important or David was so convicted about cutting his robe? What does the robe represent? Mm-hmm. It's his royalty. Remember, Jonathan gave his cloak to David, saying, you will wear this. So what was supposed to be my, after my father dies, I give to you. And recognize you're the one who's going to be king. And so it's kind of taking away from his kingship. That's the implication. Okay? And that's why he felt so bad about it, because what that means. Anything else? Stand out. Yeah, Cody. You know, I have found that there are moments of clarity that come even in people whose lives are in total rebellion to God, where they have a, a moment of sanity, if you would, where they recognize what they've done and it causes remorse, but it's a short-lived remorse because they are still bent on their own will. And so, you know, you can't say, well, he was insincere, but it kind of, what good was it? You know, what good is it to awake a condition that doesn't remain? And that's kind of what took place. Alan Redpath has a great quote on this. It says, If a man is emotionally upset as Saul was and awakens to his condition, but only weeps about it and still doesn't obey God, his second state is a thousand times worse than the first. Emotion does not lead to action, only leads deep. Emotion that does not lead to action only leads deeper into sin and rebellion. And so if his emotion doesn't turn him, it will only lead to a deeper rebellion against God because God warned him. But it was probably a very moving moment for him when you recognize, oh my gosh, I could have been killed. You guys ever been in a circumstance where your life was threatened or maybe it was a car accident, something happened and it was like, oh my gosh, I could have died. It's very sobering. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, I almost died just now. And you're just very aware of being grateful for airbags or whatever might be the condition that spared you. And so Saul is very aware that David just spared his life. He could have killed me. Oh, my gosh. You were in there? And so he he probably is very moved, but it doesn't take. 
which is a scary thing. Any other thoughts? Which is why we see that Saul went one way and David went another. David didn't go back with him. Okay, we're good now. He says, yeah, okay, go. I mean, because there is still the tension there. You're still the king and you still know that I am going to be king. You even said so yourself. So how are we supposed to work this out? Because Saul was not about to relinquish his authority. Yeah. Well, and why, why would he ask him that? Because that was the custom. Whoever took reign would wipe out the other descendants so that they couldn't have the right to the throne. That was kind of how things were done at that time. I mean, we hear about that. It's always in the movies. You know, even King Herod, you know, would kill his own sons because he doesn't want them to try and kill him because he's king, those kinds of things. And so that was the idea about that and behind that. You know, think about this. You're David and his men. You're on the run for quite a while now, years maybe. And then this divine providence drops Saul in your cave by himself. The men even said, this day, the Lord has given him to you. Was it wrong for David to kill Saul? Okay, well, let's go there. Let's go to this whole God-anointed thing. Okay. When God anoints someone, does it mean they get carte blanche, they can do whatever they want, and you can't touch them? No? No? Okay. It doesn't. In fact, David doesn't let Saul off the hook. Notice what he says here in verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Yes, Timmy. He's definitely being gracious. Definitely being gracious. And even though he had the ability to, king, to kill the king, he chose not to. And he took the higher road. And the reasons could be plentiful, you know, Pat, could be because he wanted to prevent a war. It, it seems to be that he respected that God put him there and he wasn't going to bring this kind of action against it. In other words, he wasn't going to take by force his inheritance kind of a thing. That God had promised him something, he was going to let God fulfill it and not it be by his own hands and then come across as I took it and I killed the king. He didn't want that to take place. He didn't like what that looked like, which again is very noble. When people do wrong to you, you have a right to say that it was wrong. But how you respond to that wrong is going to show your character. You know, what he says here, as that saying goes, and he mentions that saying in verse 13, from evildoers comes evil deeds. In other words, if you've got a bad character, then you're going to do bad things. If I was a person of intent to take over and to kill you, then I would have. And so David is actually now making his position clear to everyone, including us here reading this, that he was not out for power. He was not out to take the throne. He didn't care for this kind of revenge. That wasn't his character. Evildoers do evil deeds. 
it shows and revealed your character. Look at my character now. It's not going there. And so, Cody. Yeah, it is. It's very powerful. I mean, just a powerful story. And how it reveals character on both sides. With Saul and with David. You know, there are people who will use this passage to try and kind of give people in leadership this idea of you don't touch them. This as well as when uh, Paul tells Timothy, don't rebuke an elder. You know, it's kind of like, if anyone's in a position of authority, you need to leave them alone because they're God's anointed. Don't say anything against them kind of a thing. But that's not what this is saying. Okay, again, don't take what's happening between Saul and David as David's being pursued, trying to be killed by Saul, and David has the opportunity to kill Saul in this cave. Don't take that and wide brush it over all authority and all people, all pastors, all priests, all people in that kind of position. That's not what's being done. Remember, Paul rebuked Peter to his face. Because in Galatians, he tells about because he was compromising and eating with the Gentiles. And then when the Jews came, he departed from them. And Paul made a, a point to rebuke him publicly because of what that represented. You know, you're trying to take away the freedom that God has given to the Gentiles and bring in this bondage to them. And so Paul had no well, I can't touch God's anointed, Peter. I mean, you're you're one of the disciples. I can't talk about you. He had no problem. You're wrong. And he rebuked him to his face. I'm just a man. I can be rebuked. Yeah, rebuking an elder means showing courtesy. It doesn't mean that you can't reprimand someone or correct someone that's wrong. And so it's real important to see this in its context, you know, something specific is happening here that doesn't apply to every person who's a leader somewhere down the line. It's usually leaders who try and make that happen, you know. Yes, this applies to me. Um, but that's really not the case. Any other thoughts? Cool story, isn't it? I didn't see all of the Bible. Th- was this in the stories of the Bible? That's a, bit, a little bit of it. Did they? We don't know. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these inspiring stories, Lord, of how we see in the lives of men your hand and your character showing up. We see your providence. We see opportunities where you are revealed in how you protect, how you show mercy, how you're gracious. And and Lord, it's amazing to read and know that behind all these things that are going on, Lord, you are at work. You are doing something. And you're doing it through these people. And here you're doing it so much through David. And we see why he is a man after your own heart. We see him being gracious. We see him going to help people. We, we see your character in him, Lord. And how encouraging is that to see? And know even his weaknesses that will come about, Lord, 
that you were with him, working, and you didn't give up. Lord, may you continue to work in our hearts. May we see your hand in our lives as well. We thank you again for your faithfulness. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.